Thank you, Patrick. Isn't it good to have John and Sophie Ford and their family back amongst us? Where there is often hopelessness, John always brings a word of hope. So, mate, it's, uh, it's been great getting to know you and thoroughly looking forward to getting to know you and the family much more over the, the coming weeks. So, for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, Patrick kick-started a sort of three-part mini-series on the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. And just as Patrick uh, shared last week that there are seven I am statements, each collectively pointing towards the divinity of God, giving us a sense of God's character. So there are also seven miracles in the Gospel of John. Seven um, in Hebrew is the, the number for perfection or completeness. The whole of John's Gospel is pointing us towards the fact that Jesus is God, he is perfect, he is complete. And the seventh and final miracle, the climax, if you like, of uh, Jesus' miracle work that we've been seeing this morning uh, in John's Gospel is the focus of what we're going to focus on today. Uh, And with that comes what I think is one of the biggest, boldest I am statements amongst the lot. And we're going to explore that together. So if you have a Bible, we're going to turn straight to um, John 11. It'll be behind me as well, so you can follow along too. So let's begin with a bit of context. uh, Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Skip on a little bit. Here's the claim. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died. But even now, I love her faith, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And we'll finish our chapter by, again, just skipping on a little bit with the miracle that follows. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father. That's how he talks to his 
father, his good, good father, right there and then in the heat of the moment. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Last few weeks have been an interesting journey for me, a slightly unexpected journey. I thought, being a bit of a church kid, that I knew everything I needed to know about the resurrection. Turns out I I didn't. I've had to unlearn and relearn a few things over the last uh, couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this. And I hope that what I've learned and what's been such a blessing to me over the last couple of weeks will also be a blessing to you guys too. And what better place to start, I think, than the very claim itself. I am the resurrection and the life. What exactly was Jesus claiming? Well, if you ask the average Western Christian today, what is resurrection? My experience of the last couple of decades of my own faith would tell me that we tend to associate resurrection to life after death, being raised up to heaven. What happens when we die? Where our spirit or our soul goes, if you like. But that's not what it meant in the first century. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, which means upstanding, and was never used to mean what we think of as life after death. Rather, resurrection is the physical upstanding of a physical body that was dead, not a spiritual body as such. And in the first century, the typically held view was that of what Martha shares with us in verse 24, when she, say, when, when she talks about people being raised up on the last day. Most first century scholars and rabbis of the time, they believed in this sort of resurrection. Not all, but most. Because they believed that our good creator God would one day make everything right. And he'd ultimately do this at the resurrection on the last day. And indeed, in the Gospel of John, Jesus promises this last day resurrection will happen five times. The time in between, between the day we die and the last day, is an intermediate state. We are awaiting the final state, where our bodies will be resurrected, will be transformed like Christ's glorious body to inhabit a new earth. So this is the context to which Jesus was speaking into. But on that fateful day in Bethany, Jesus wasn't talking about a last day resurrection either. Nor was he talking about what we might have associated as life after death. He's talking about something altogether different. He's talking about a right now resurrection. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you notice it's present tense? It's not will live, future tense. It's lives, present tense. Perhaps one of the most curious parts of our story is how Jesus responds when he first hears the news of Lazarus' death. Do you notice in verse 6 it says, 
So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Why did Jesus purposefully stall his visit? And we get our answer in verse 4. It says it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. In being late to Lazarus, there was no hesitation amongst any of the people that Lazarus was dead. His body was decomposing and we're told the stench was starting to rise. And so Jesus was about to do something only he could do. For Jesus to claim to be the resurrection, he would have to overcome death. And that's exactly what he was about to do. He was promising and was the only person who could promise a right now resurrection. But here's where it gets exciting, I think, for us here sat in the room today. Jesus was not just promising a right now resurrection to Lazarus. But as we know, sitting on this side of the story, he was giving us a foretaste of something far greater that just a short while later was about to happen. A right now resurrection he would offer to everyone who would believe in him. Lazarus was about to be the most incredible visual aid of the kingdom work Jesus was about to launch. So what was Jesus about to do? What was about to happen at the resurrection? Well, to fully understand the significance of the resurrection for which Lazarus' story is a foretaste, we have to first understand the story so far that's led us to this point, to led us to the resurrection. We heard at the beginning of the recent Timeless series that men and women were perfectly designed to be the image bearers of God, his perfect agents in his perfect world. And that short section that follows the account of creation, the 927 chapters from Genesis 3 to Malachi 4, crudely put, are then the account of man and woman's demise. Under the oppression of sin, the very people intended to bear his resemblance and to be his closest partners became anything but that. Mankind started to look amongst itself for a saviour. From rulers, from kings, from the prophets. And, his, and amongst himself, amongst mankind, was found wanting. You may see a few parallels today. The only route back to God would be through God himself. And is at the cross that God's redemption plan through his son, Jesus Christ, would climax. It would be at the cross that the sin and the mess that we got ourselves into, that had put a permanent wedge between God and man, would be dealt with. As Jesus, our sacrifice, pays the price in our place. And in a beautiful exchange, as he takes our unrighteousness, he credits us with his perfect righteousness, making a way for us to be in a right relationship with our perfect God. Amen? But in the Western church, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, we can unknowingly end our story there. Our worship can be placed squarely on the cross. We wear jewellery exclusively of the cross. We adorn our churches with symbols of the cross. And these are all good things. These are all really good things. After all, we sometimes sing, the cross stands above it all. And it really does. 
This is truth. But the resurrection is then often just the thing we store up for Easter. But this isn't how the early church saw the resurrection. In fact, it is the centerpiece of the message they proclaimed. In the book of Acts, the word resurrection appears 10 times. The word cross doesn't appear at all. And indeed, the story can't end there. If it did, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. It would be in vain because our saviour all he claimed to be and all he promised to be, the righteousness he'd won for us at the cross would have been buried with him. A dead saviour wouldn't have been a saviour at all. But living on this side of the cross, we know the cross was only the first part of God's rescue plan. Three days later, as Lazarus' story gives us a foretaste of, the stone was rolled away and Jesus would walk free from death. Here's why we can't end a story at the cross. Here's why the resurrection mattered so much to the first disciples and matters so much to us today. If Jesus made a way for us to live a life free from sin at the cross, Jesus made a way for us to actually live that life fully at the resurrection. As the power of death was defeated and we were freed from death as well. This was the launch of nothing less than new life itself. This resurrection was the beginning of God making the world right again. It's a resurrection for the right now, and it's available for each and every person who believes. As Paul writes in Romans 6, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, we'll never understand the Bible if we don't see it as a narrative that goes through the long night of man's sinful demise and bursts forth in new life on Easter Sunday. A world taken through death and out the other side into new life. Whatever your situation, that same narrative is available for your life story today, if you want it. John's Gospel, which was probably the most complete account of the resurrection, goes to great lengths, writing not once but twice that Resurrection Sunday was the first day of the week. Firstly in verse 1, secondly in verse 19. Check it out for yourself. He was pointing at the fact that the resurrection was the start of something. It was the start of new life. In a moment of madness, um, my wife Katie and I um, thought it would be a great idea to spin up a new business a few weeks back, selling fine cheeses. Uh, And so we've been testing our business concept uh, amongst the good people of my parents' village. And what we've been doing is setting up a small pop-up market stall in my parents' village, and we've been watching the crowds go past us day by day. A few of them have obviously come and bought a few of our good, uh, our good product. But many of them have had their head down, their smiles turned upside down, and walking, marching right on past. And I tell you, if a face tells a story, the story of most people today is not one of new life. The frowns, the marches that people go on 
in their daily walks. I tell you, if you're a London commuter, I'm sure you can empathize with me. So I think this good news of new life is a message that is perhaps more needed today than ever before, if I can just take my reading from the faces of the people that we've met over the last couple of weekends doing what we've been doing. So what was, what sort of new life was Jesus launching that day? Well, thankfully, Jesus gave us a taste of the new life he was launching through the life that he led himself. And in particular, the miracles, the seven miracles that I mentioned at the beginning, documented in John's Gospel, tell us an awful lot about the life he was launching. Let's explore them together in chronological order. Firstly, it was a life of celebration, not condemnation, as he spares the groom's embarrassment at the wedding in Cana by turning the water into wine and avoiding wine from running out. Secondly, he was launching a new life of strength, not sickness, as he heals the nobleman's son miles away from his, the sick son. And he heals the man at the pool of Bethsaida who had been there for 38 years with a chronic condition. It's a life of feast, not famine, as he feeds the 5,000 with food to spare. It's a life of faith, not fear, as he walks on the water and invites Peter to do the same. It's a life of light, not darkness, as he gives the sight to the man blind from birth. And it's a life to be fully lived, as we've just read, as he resurrects Lazarus when all hope was lost. In essence, the new life Jesus launched on Easter Sunday was the renewal of the life God had intended us to live in the original timeless designs launched at creation. But of course, new life doesn't end on Easter Sunday, just in the resurrection of Jesus' body alone. Having been launched, new life is then put to work in the world through the Holy Spirit. Paul quotes again in 1 Corinthians 15, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Clearly the renewal of life hasn't been completed yet. We just need to turn on our TVs, I think, to realise that. Completion will only happen on the last day when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit, that life-giving spirit, continues the renewing work of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to live out new life then through the Holy Spirit? Perhaps the clearest account we get uh, comes in the first church in the book of Acts, in what is undoubtedly one of the most profound turnaround stories in history. And it offers one of the clearest accounts of how we're meant to live today. In a matter of moments, this dysfunctional band of disciples, scared, doors locked, curtains closed, fearful for their lives, doubtful for their future, transforms into a spirit-filled, fearless, fruitful band of kingdom makers. Acts 2 beautifully details out for us. Upon receiving the Holy Spirit, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and signs they performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want to be part of that group of guys. There were 10 to 12 messianic Jewish movements at the time of the early church. This was the only one that didn't end in the violent death of their Messiah. Whilst all around them were giving up their movement or finding a new Messiah, this inspired band of men and women astonishingly did neither. Instead, they declared that the recently crucified Jesus was still alive and was still very much their Messiah. Probably gives you a clue as to why the resurrection was so important for these guys. And as they received the promised Holy Spirit to be with them, it changed everything in an instant. How do they live? They lived in devotion to God, in devotion to one another, and in devotion to those who needed it. At the resurrection, new life was launched and the Holy Spirit was, wor- is, it was working it out in the lives of each and every disciple. And today, that same Holy Spirit that gave new life to Jesus and was working out new life in the early disciples is available for each and every one of us who believes. As Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 4, just as Christ was raised from dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. But what we also learn from that first church in Acts is this, that the Holy Spirit isn't just going to transform us with new life launched at the resurrection. He's going to transform us to be new life bringers ourselves. It's his intent that we both breathe in new life and breathe out new life as well. It's clearly on show amongst the early church, and it's how God intends for us to live today. I've quoted a few times from 1 Corinthians 15. Definitely give it a read. It's a a brilliant bit of scripture, really unpacking the mystery and the victory of the resurrection. But how does Paul end this particular chapter? He ends it like this. I'm going to use the message version because I just love the words the translator uses. He says this, with all that is going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. I'd say over the last 12 months, the single biggest transformation in my own faith has come through understanding, receiving, and walking more in step with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps through being on the academy where we uh, pray in the spirit, we learn about the spirit, perhaps through my own reading, perhaps even through the Holy Spirit growing himself in me, maturing in me. And now, having been on this journey over the last couple of weeks with a firmer understanding of what was launched at the resurrection, I now understand more clearly for what purpose It's good to preach, in part because I get to step back and see what God's been up to in my own life. And whilst I am far, far from a finished article, my wife will tell you that, 
I am definitely being changed. And I attribute that to walking more in step with the Holy Spirit. We explored earlier just some of those different characteristics of new life that Jesus launched on Resurrection Sunday. And I'm definitely starting to see some of those coming through in my own life. Take new life being one of faith, not fear. I'm definitely praying bigger, bolder prayers at the moment. We were driving up uh, to my parents' place to set up our cheese stall on Thursday. You may have heard there's been quite a lot of rain in the UK recently. Setting up a market stall in winter's not great for retail if it rains. The weather forecasts, they say it was 60% chance of rain, which is their way of saying hedging their bets, but basically it's going to rain. We pray big, bold prayers to say, God, would you calm the rains and the storms? We didn't get a drop of rain on us on the Friday or the Saturday we were selling, except when we were setting up and when we were packing down. I think that was God just smiling on us there. We've started praying for our mates more and more. And I kid you not, in the space of three weeks, two of our very best sets of mates, and we've known these guys for years, have opened up to us about their mental health challenges. We didn't even know they had them. I tell you, God has been answering our prayers in amazing ways recently. I've started getting more expectant about the Holy Spirit in terms of what he's done ahead of me. And I'm looking to capitalize on the Spirit's groundwork when I go about my day. Talk about new life being one of light and not darkness. There's a couple of things in my own life I've been battling with that are definitely in that darkness category that I've been battling with for years. A few of us as leaders, we gathered as for a, a, a course, um, Keys for Freedom. And I stood by the window that day and I was talking to God and I was saying, what is it you want to do today? And as I looked out the window, the shop frontage said, totally clean, repairs and alterations. That day, repairs and alterations happened in my heart. And I can confidently say I stand here today with more self-control, more strength than I've ever had on these particular issues. Take new life being one of strength, not sickness. I'm now more regularly and fervently praying and practicing the gifts of the Spirit, turning my hand to healing prayers. Do you know how many people I've seen healed in the last six months from praying healing prayers? None. But you know what? Even when we don't see it, he's still working. Even when we don't feel it, he's still working. Do you know when you, when you pray big prayers and you don't see them answered, it's not a reason to stop praying. It's a reason to pray more. One of the books I've been reading that I'd love to recommend to each and every one of you is this book. It's called Power Evangelism by John Wimber. Many of you will have read it. And I can tell you this has been formative in many of the forefathers of this church movement. Um, he unpacks what it means to walk in the spirit. Would anyone like this? There you go. Get hold of it. It genuinely is transformational. I'm excited to say that the Holy Spirit is working in me. And I'm playing a small but not insignificant part 
in working out a new life in the world. And my prayer is this, that that role grows and matures as the Holy Spirit grows and matures in me. Ross, I'd love you to come back up and join us and um, just start playing in the background as we sort of start bringing this to a conclusion and start readying ourselves to perhaps respond. I haven't mentioned, of course, the fact that the resurrection means there's hope beyond the grave. Jesus promises us everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We shouldn't lose sight of that, of course, and this is a whole other sermon for another day. But on that fateful day in Bethany, that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the death, Jesus wasn't just promising us a resurrection on the last day as most understood it to be at the time. He was promising us a right now resurrection that launched new life and the renewal of creation, starting with his own body. When we become Christians, we take hold of right now resurrection. We're filled with the spirit and new life begins to transform every part of us. Then, as it fills us up, and overflows from us, we begin to be bringers of life that God had intended us to be when he first designed man and woman. As Paul writes towards the ends of his unpacking of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 again, when the perishable, that's us, put on the imperishable, that's Jesus, and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, don't take hold of the resurrection today. Don't take hold of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Take hold of the resurrection every day. Death is defeated. Victory is won. Life is here and it is here to be fully lived. Fully, fearlessly and fruitfully for the glory of God. Amen. Let's worship.